0: This morning we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 28, Mark 1, 21 through 28. And in the text this morning, uh, Jesus is going to speak in a way that surprises the people. He's going to speak with authority. And so as I was working through this text and thinking about this concept of authority, it made me think of these different... I don't know if you'd call them movements or fads or trends throughout history where it was really cool to reject authority. That it was like really hip to be anti-establishment or, or counter-cultural. There, it, a lot of people think that their generation was the first generation to do this. Um, and you'll be maybe surprised to learn that you were not. Um, we can go back just 150 years and we've got several examples, okay? Um, so kind of going working chronologically from the top left to the bottom right. We have the Bohemian movement, which was like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Then you move to the Roaring Twenties with the Jazz Age flappers. And then you got like the 50s and the 60s. You got the Greasers and the Beatniks. Then you have the Hippies and you got the Punk movement. Then you have the Goth movement. I ran out of a spot for the, the grunge in like the 90s. And then, I don't know, all of this kind of makes hipsters seem pretty tame. Like... Yeah, we got beards and tattoos and we want to wear a beanie when it's 105 degrees, but in comparison, you know, it's pretty tame. So I just point out, I mean, this could go back for all of human history, I think. I want to point out that a lot of times we think, oh, it's so cool to be anti-establishment, to be counter-cultural. Well, this is not something that is new. This has been happening as long as there have been people. Um, I I actually think that probably like Noah's sons probably cut their hair in a weird way that Noah didn't like or that I imagine Solomon listening to weird music and Bathsheba telling David like, it's okay, it's just a phase he's going through, don't worry about it, okay? (laughs) There's just something in us, something in our bones, something in our bloods that makes us want to reject authority, And as we think about these different movements, a lot of times we think, well, you know, that was really just kind of butting up against cultural norms or cultural expectations. And that's one thing. But what we're talking about this morning is not just a rejection of a cultural norm, a certain way to wear your hair or your clothes. We're talking about a a lack of willingness to submit to genuine authority, to rightful power as we think about us as people we do not like to do this we don't like to be told what to do and this is a problem because jesus when he shows up on the scene which you think about just from the last couple of weeks that we've studied he is speaking and teaching with power and authority he came and he said the kingdom of god is at hand meaning I am the king, and I am reclaiming this place for God's kingdom. Now, that's speaking with power and authority. And then he calls the disciples, hey, drop everything, leave everything behind, and come and follow me. That's speaking with authority and with power. And so, we need to understand what it means for Jesus to have power if we're going to be willing to submit to his authority. We learned this definition of kingdom last week, that a, a good, rightful kingdom has three things. It has a king with power over a people in a certain place. Now that's true of any earthly kingdom, and that is true of God's kingdom as well. And so when we think of God's kingdom and we learn about God's kingdom, we're learning about one of those three things, the king's power, the king's people, or the king's place or we're learning about how all three of those things work together. And so Jesus comes basically saying, I am the king. And so for that to be true, that means he must have power. For us to be willing to be his people, he must have power and authority. And so, he comes on the scene, says, the kingdom of God is at hand, and we must ask this question. Well, what kind of a king is Jesus? What kind of a power does he have? Is it a genuine and a righteous power? I mean, who is Jesus to speak in this way, to make these claims about himself? And this is the question I think the text is going to answer for us this morning. So looking now at verses 21 and 22. And they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum. This is a city in Galilee, which is going to be Jesus' kind of home base for his ministry. And they went uh, in Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And so the Sabbath is the regular worship day for the Jewish people. The synagogue is the place where they gather together for worship. And Jesus had the opportunity that morning to teach. They actually didn't have necessarily one specific teacher Instead, said they had someone who would find a teacher for that week. And oftentimes, if there was a rabbi who traveled around who was in town, they would ask that person to speak. And so Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity and he begins to preach and to teach. And when he preaches and teaches, it is very different from what the people expected. We see this as we read verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. Now, in the original language, this was a very strong word. It is a compound word built off of um, two words, the first one meaning to hit or to strike or to pound, and the second one meaning out. It's almost like they were knocked senseless by the way that Jesus was teaching. They're, They're flabbergasted. What in the world? We've never heard anybody teach this way before. Well, what was so different? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, scribes is a general term for the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees, that's a type of scribe. The Sadducees, that's a type of scribe. Basically, it's the one, it's the people who are supposed to be the authority when it comes to the Bible. When it comes to all things God related, look to the scribes as the authority on the matter. Well, Jesus taught in a way that was very different from the scribes. Well, how so? The scribes, like any good scholar or academic, they didn't point to themselves as the authority. Instead, they pointed to an outside source as the authority or the foundation of what they taught. They pointed to the Bible, or they pointed to a previous rabbi from a a previous generation and said, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this on this subject. And oftentimes, they thought that their... Preaching or their teaching was more authoritative if they could stack up example after example after example of all these rabbis pointing to an outside authority. Well, what did Jesus do? He did not point to an outside authority. Instead, he spoke from his own innate authority, which is very different. You can think of later in the Gospels, we'll hear this phrase. Jesus says, well, you have heard it said, Da 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 da. And he quotes either the Bible or he quotes uh, a tradition or a teaching of the day. And then Jesus says, But I say to you, meaning I don't have to point to an outside authority. I can speak authoritatively on this subject from who I am. And so this is very different from the people of what they had experienced. And they are astonished to find somebody speaking with this kind of authority. They're looking around and they're saying, this is crazy because he's not pointing to anybody else. And then they realize that means that he's speaking to them. They're looking around They're going, you know what, he's not actually talking to somebody else either. He's talking to me. He's talking to my life, to my world. He's speaking over the lives of these men and these women. He is saying that the kingdom of God is not some far-off reality. It is here what you can reach and touch and see. And in this way, Jesus spoke over all of their lives. And in this way, we could summarize verses 21 and 22. That Jesus has authority over all that is seen. Jesus has authority over all that is seen, which is our first point this morning. The kingdom of God is here is what he said. Reach out and touch it. Look around you. What you see is my kingdom. I have authority over it. And so in order to really get all that we can get out of this text, we're going to have to understand exactly what authority is. And so I went to incredibly great lengths to do deep research into this subject. And I opened up the dictionary and I looked up authority. (laughs) So according to Merriam-Webster, authority is the power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. The power to either have influence over it or even just to command how a person should think, how they should believe, and how they should behave. And so jesus comes on the scene and he speaks with authority meaning he is claiming to have the power to influence or command how these people think what they believe and how they behave and so of course the question is well does jesus have that authority does he have the power to back it up anybody can claim to have authority but do you actually have the power well we know this about Jesus. Paul described Jesus in Colossians one 15 through 15-17 in this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. In other words, Paul described Jesus' power in this way. He created everything and he sustains everything. If not for Jesus' power, all things would just fly into nothingness. So, does Jesus have the power to speak with authority? Does he have the power to influence or command our thought, our opinions, our behaviors? Well, yes, he does. But the problem is, we don't like people having authority over us. If you don't believe me, just listen to kids and the conversations they have. Oftentimes, kids just give voice to the sinful desires of our hearts. And what do kids say? Well, you're not the boss of me, you're not my mom. Well, who died and made you king of the world? What are they doing? They're just saying the things that we wish we could say, right? And we sometimes say things like this anyway. Well, who do you think you are? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? We don't like the idea of someone having authority or power over us, the power to command our thoughts, our beliefs, our behaviors, our actions. I'll give you another example, that this is a widespread problem. I mean, if the funny haircuts wasn't proof enough. In Reddit, or in 2015, Reddit is a website. If you don't know what it is, I don't know how to explain it to you. Um, but in 2015, they did uh, with this thing they called the button experiment. The button experiment. It's a simple web page. All it had was a big gray button, and it said, you probably shouldn't push it. Okay? And when the first person pushed that button, a 60-second timer started, and the experiment would end when that 60-second timer worked its way to zero. But every time a new person pushed the button, the timer would start over. Okay? Um, you could only push the button once, and only Reddit users were, were, had access to this. So that's a pretty short window of time, 60 seconds, you probably shouldn't push the button. How long do you think the experiment went on for? 65 days with 1,008,316 individual people pushing the button. Why? Because we don't like to be told what to do. It's that simple. Well, here's the problem, church. When we think about Jesus and his authority... And his power, we're not talking about rejecting arbitrary cultural norms. We're not talking about haircuts or clothing styles or pushing silly buttons on the internet. We're talking about rejecting rightful authority. Rebelling against the person who actually has the power to command our thoughts, our beliefs, and our behaviors. And so the issue that we have is oftentimes we minimize the seriousness of sin. And We like to just tell ourselves, oh, that's just a silly rule that God came up with a long time ago. But sin, in any form, at its core, is rebellion against God's authority. It is our attempt to steal the throne of God. To say that He is not king of my life, I am king of my life. You know, believe me, go all the way back to the very first sin in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. God gave pretty simple instructions. Here's paradise. Enjoy it. Just don't eat the fruit from this one tree. And ultimately, the temptation was not what did the fruit taste like. The temptation was, I don't like being told what to do. I want to be boss. You know, believe me, how did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? It wasn't man, that fruit, it tastes real good. Satan said to Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Read that in Genesis chapter 3. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Then it says, then Eve saw that the fruit was delightful to the eyes and was good for food. Meaning, prior to hearing this temptation from Satan that the fruit would make her like God, she hadn't even really looked that closely at the fruit. Don't eat that fruit? Okay, I guess I'll stay away from it. Oh, it could make me like God. I mean, they live in paradise. Every need they could ever have supplied for, what is the one thing they don't have? They're not God. And so in eating of the fruit, it was not about what did the fruit taste like. It was not about being, uh, an, uh, being withheld from a good gift. It was a rebellion against God as king. It was an attempt to dethrone him. And every sin, sin ever since then has been the same thing. You might be able to convince yourself that it's not a big deal. But ultimately it is you rejecting God's rightful authority over you, over your life. It is you saying... I want to be king. And so, we have this problem. We don't want to follow a king. But, let me ask you this question. Let's suppose that you were convinced that you would follow a king. What kind of a king would you want to follow? A good and gracious king? One who loves you? One who knows you better than you know yourself. One who has your best at heart. One who has the power to protect you. That's what Jesus has. That's what he's demonstrating here. Is If he has the power to make you, then certainly he has the power to protect you. And if he has the power to make you and to protect you, then certainly he has the power to command you. That was one of the understood agreements between a king and the people. All right, you're the king, which means that you have the power over the people in this place. We are your servants. We submit to your power. Your responsibility is to use your power to protect your people from outside invaders and so when we look to jesus we place our faith in him we say i want to be one of your people i will live in submission to your power one of the reasons we're willing to do that is because he is going to use his power to protect us that is the kind of king that he is and it is so important to remember he actually has the power to do this He's not just uh, pretending. He's not just puffing out his chest, speaking with authority. Look how great I am. He actually has the power to back up his authority. And this is important. Remember what he just claimed. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. I'm the king. Well, if you're going to claim to be the king, then you better have the power to conquer all other kingdoms. You better have the power to protect your people. And this is who Jesus is. This is, well, at least in the first two verses, this is who he claims to be. Does he actually have this kind of power? Is he this kind of king? Well, let's keep reading verses 23 to 28 to find that out. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So, this is a person who is under a very strong influence of Satan, one of his demons. We could say that he is possessed, but that probably just makes you think of scary movies. Um, But the point is, is that there is a demon inside this man controlling and uh, influencing him in a very strong way. And he cried out, the, the demon cried out, in fear. Jesus is on the scene, speaking with authority, and the demon is scared to death. He cries out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now here, you notice the demon is speaking us, plural. Maybe that means there's more than one demon inside this man. That's possible. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. But more than that, we know that the demon is speaking on behalf of Satan and the entire kingdom of darkness. Jesus, I know who you are. I know you are the kingdom. You are the king of light. I know you have come to conquer us. Is that what you're here to do? Verse, the end of verse 24, I know who you are. You are the holy one of God. Holy means set apart. You are the one that God has chosen and sent for this great mission that the kingdom of light would come and conquer the kingdom of darkness. That the kingdom of light would reclaim this world for God's honor and name and glory. That's why you're here, Jesus. And so, already in the Gospel of Mark, we've had this incredible testimony from above. God speaking from the heavens. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And now we have this testimony from below. Jesus, I know who you are. Keep reading verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. All right, here's the moment. Jesus claims to have authority. He claims to have power. What's going to happen when he actually attempts to command the actions of this demon? Verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him The demon had no choice but to obey Christ's commands. This is astounding. I can't even get my dog to obey my commands, okay? But look at the power of Jesus. Verse 27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In other words, he has authority because when he speaks, they obey. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. <coughs> Excuse me. So, we saw in the first couple of verses that Jesus is at least claiming to have the authority over all of these people's lives. I'm the king of this kingdom, everything you see, it is mine. And then he demonstrates that he actually has the power, he actually has the authority, because he commands and shows his control over not the things that are seen, but even the things that are unseen. So Jesus has authority over all that is seen, and Jesus has authority over all that is unseen. Which is our next point this morning. Jesus has authority over all that is unseen. So we ask this question, who is Jesus to speak in this way with authority? And we see the answer here is pretty clear. He's the one with so much power that he can control not just what we see, but he can control the things that we can't even see, let alone understand or have power over. Can you imagine having power or control over something you can't even see, over a demon Of course we can't do that, but Jesus shows that he has that power, he has that control. And this is really, really good news. But I think there's a little bit of a problem here for us this morning. I think that there's a good chance that we fall into one of two errors of extremes when it comes to this passage. I think we either struggle to believe that this story is true, or we struggle to believe that it really has anything to do with our lives. We live in a world that, since Jesus' day, we've had incredible scientific advancement, and that leads us to have a worldview where we believe that the things that are really real are the things that we can touch and see and measure that we seem to believe that that is what reality is and the things that are unseen, this idea of a spiritual reality, yeah, I guess it's true. I hope it's true, but it's less real to us. And that is an error of extreme that we should not fall into. We come to this text and we think, I don't know, maybe maybe then, rather than being demon-possessed, maybe this man just had a mental illness and Jesus miraculously healed his mental illness. And for some reason... That's more believable to us, as if that wouldn't also be a miracle, as if that wouldn't also require the power of God to do something that we could never do. And so we should accept the testimony of Scripture that there are things that we cannot see. Powers and forces at work in this world that are more powerful than us, that we cannot control. And that just because we can't see them or touch them, that does not make them real. That does not make them not real. So we might fall into the error of that extreme. Or we might believe this passage, but because of the experiences that we've had in our lives, I've never seen anything like this. We struggle to understand what it means for us or why it's important for us. This seems like something that would be in a movie. This doesn't seem like something that would be important for our day-to-day lives. And so, I'm glad that Jesus has this power, but what does this mean for me? There's a good quote from C.S. Lewis, and one of these days I'm going to have to quote somebody else. But, here's another good one. He wrote a, a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is obviously a fictional story of like a really um, experienced demon giving advice to an inexperienced demon. Here's how you do a good job of tempting people and leading them away from God. Now, before he gets into the book, he actually gives an interesting introduction, and he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall, about the devils, about demons. And one is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased with both errors, and they are just as happy with a materialist as they are with a magician. Meaning that if we fall into either errors of extremes, the demons can take advantage of our error. Someone who says, I don't know, are there really demons out there, these spiritual beings that are just trying to trip us up? They will take advantage of that error. And for those who are obsessed or have an unhealthy interest in the darkness of spiritual powers, they will take advantage of that as well. The other day, I was looking for a new podcast to listen to, and there's no like, Christian category. Instead, it's just religion and spirituality. So I click on that, and I'm scrolling through like the top 100 most popular podcasts in that category. And there was, I would say, a ratio of probably one Christian podcast for every five podcasts that are about witchcraft, sorcery, and the occult. And not like a True Crime podcast where, well, you know, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was in The Demons. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are practicing dark spiritual religious things and are teaching others to do it. And so either error of extreme, Satan will take advantage of. And we do not want to find ourselves in that place. Instead, we want to believe this text as true as the word of god we want to learn from it and we need to be on guard against satan's attacks against us they can be this dramatic as we see in this text or they can be more subtle now if you want to find some examples i came across a certain belief in indian hinduism called mata Anna, which is this belief that one of the gods can inhabit or possess a person during uh, worship or during meditation. And the uh, expression of that, you can find this on YouTube, you can Google it, find these people looking and exact, acting exactly how the Bible describes demon possession. But they've been deceived. They think that it is a genuine overflow of their worship, and instead they are simply participating in the powers of darkness. And so this should, I think, in one way help us to interact with people of other religions and other faiths. It's probably not that they are disgenuine about the experiences that that they are having. It's probably just that Satan is giving them genuine spiritual experiences of darkness rather than of light. And so it can be dramatic, like this text that we see today, or it can be much more subtle. And I'm, this part, I'm just going to preface, is Shan's opinion. I can't point to a passage in the Bible to defend this, but Satan is wise, okay? And he knows our culture well, and if the predominant belief in our culture is that there are no spiritual things that everything that we see and touch and taste that's reality? If that's the culture that we live in and Satan is smart, would it be more beneficial to his cause to be big and bold and dramatic, or would it be more beneficial to him to stay kind of quiet and subtle? And so that is why I would think that we don't see a lot of in our day in our culture what we see in the Bible but if you go to other parts of the world go ask the missions team as they've gone across the world you see more overt acts of Satan as people participate in religions of darkness but that being said if we are to expect Satan in our culture to primarily be more subtle then what should we expect as he attempts to distract and divert us from worshiping the one true God, as he attempts to hinder the growth of God's kingdom. Well, I can give you one example that is clear from Scripture. Did you know that not every thought that enters your mind is from you? That Satan and his demons have the ability, even even though you are filled with the Holy Spirit, as a believer, meaning that there's, you're full up. There's no room for a demon to be in there, okay? And they're scared of God anyway. They wouldn't want to be there with him. They don't want to be roommates with God in your heart, okay? So even though, as a Christian, you are full of the Holy Spirit, Satan and his demons still have the ability to influence your emotions and even the thoughts that you have. There are plenty of examples of this in Scripture. John 13, we learned that it was the devil who put the the thought the idea into the heart of judas to betray jesus in acts 5 we learn that it was the devil who put the thought into the heart of ananias and sapphira to lie to the church in first chronicles 21 we learned that it was the devil who put the thought into the heart and mind of david to take the census that he should not take lots of examples of satan working in this much more subtle way than having someone screaming and convulsing right in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul is concerned for the Corinthian church in this way, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's concerned that Satan will have influence over the thinking of the Corinthian church, which will lead them from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so, we may or may not see Satan possessing someone in this very dramatic, bold way, but you can expect that he is for sure trying to distract you from worship. He's trying to put wicked, dark thoughts into your mind. He's trying to hinder the growth of God's kingdom in that way, at least. So, another quote from Lewis here, or a thought from Lewis was, in the screw Tape Letters, the experienced demon is giving this advice to the inexperienced demon. He said, okay, so the person you're trying to tempt, they've started going to church. Don't worry, you haven't lost them yet. All you have to do is, when they're in church, put these thoughts in their mind. Instead of thinking about worship, have them think about how the person behind them is singing out of tune. Have them think about how, I can't believe that person wore that thing to church. Have them think about that person. I can't believe they even came to church. What a hypocrite. And I think Lewis in those examples is being gracious. There have been times when I've been in worship, what I thought was completely focused on God and out of nowhere, the darkest, most perverse thought has entered my mind. I'm going, "Where, where did that come from? What a distraction. And I have to like, refocus on god and who he is and i'll tell you where that thought came from and this is not me trying to shift blame but satan is actively trying to destroy the kingdom of god and he is able to put thoughts into our mind paul describes in ephesians 6 the spiritual warfare that we are in the midst of and he describes these uh, flaming arrows and we have to take up the shield of faith to quench those flaming arrows. And it's almost like sometimes during worship and, and, and Satan just throws a flaming arrow right into your mind. This is because we are at battle. When we decided to follow King Jesus, we became the enemy of the prince of this world. And there is no way to be passive in this battle. Jesus is your Lord, Satan is against you, it's the reality. Which means we have to do this, this is from Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places what paul is telling us is he's warning us who we're actually in battle against sometimes i mean jesus promised that the world would be against us he said look how they treat me how do you think they're going to treat you if you're following me So he gave us that warning. But this puts it into context a little bit that even if there is a person who is actively against Christ or Christians or the church, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That person is simply following the power and the influence of the cosmic spiritual powers of darkness. And so we must be on guard against these powers against this darkness but church there is incredibly good news in this passage we are not going into this battle alone we are not going into this battle dependent upon our power we are going into this battle led by king jesus who has power and authority over all that is seen and all that is unseen when he speaks the demons tremble when he commands they obey He has the power to bind the strong man. He has the power to silence Satan. And at the end of time, we know from Revelation that when he returns in his fullness, that Satan will be fully destroyed and cast into hell. Not where he's going to be the ruler, but where he is going to be punished for all of eternity. And so we go into this battle putting on the full armor of God, following our King, trusting that He has the power to protect us, rejoicing in that. But I hope you see what that naturally requires. We go, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful that Jesus has the authority and the power to protect us from the spiritual powers of darkness. We rejoice in that, as we should. But what that means is we cannot rejoice in Jesus' authority over Satan and then refuse to submit to his authority in our lives. He either has the authority or he doesn't, he either has the power or he doesn't. And so if we rest in the protection of his power, we also have to submit to the authority of His power. As we conclude, I want to read one more passage for us. It's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. This is Paul describing the day when Christ in His fullness returns and defeats Satan. And all of the world and all of creation comes into submission under the authority of Jesus. This is what it's going to look like. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this picture, we see Satan, even Satan and his demons, bowing their knee and confessing that Jesus is Lord. But not in a way where they receive forgiveness and paradise. It is in a way that keeps them under the earth, a picture of hell. And in this passage, there will be many people there with them. And so the reality is, is that one day you will bow your knee in submission to Jesus' authority. And if you do it in this life, willingly submitting to him as king, then he will graciously use his power to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness. But if you would refuse that offer, at the end of your life, you'll be judged for your sin. You'll be cast into hell with Satan and his demons. And there you will submit to the power and the authority of Jesus. There is no getting around it. He has too much power. He has too much authority. Everyone will submit. The question is, will you do it in a way in which you receive the goodness and the grace of his power? Or will you be conquered by the king's power? We're going to have a time of response, which means it's, it's time for you to move as the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. I would love to talk with anybody down here in the front to show you from God's word how you can become one of Jesus's people, how that if you would submit to his power now through faith and repentance, that you could be saved and your eternity would be secure living in God's kingdom. So if that's something that the Holy Spirit is telling you in your heart that you need to talk about, then please come and speak with me down here in the front. Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word. We're thankful for how it both encourages us and corrects us. And this morning, Lord, we are so encouraged by the truth that you have authority and power over everything. That you will use that authority and that power to protect us from the things that we can't even see. But Lord, we recognize that that means we have to be more willing to submit to your authority and power. So help us. Our sinful hearts don't want to do it. We need you to work a miracle of faith, a miracle of humility and the miracle of obedience in our hearts. Please, Holy Spirit, do this for your glory and for the building of your kingdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.